It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, December 30th, 2008. One more day of 2008 left. And then you start writing a bunch of checks with... They're supposed to be 2009, but you keep writing 2008 because it's a habit. And it just messes everything up. It happens to me every year. I hate it when I do that. <laughs> oh, man. I got an email. Actually, I got quite a few emails on this uh, transportation in the spirit thing. And uh, well, I'll read you one of them. And uh, we got some good stuff today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Christ. And this is the show that your pastor may have warned you about. Don't listen to Fighting for the Faith. It'll make you dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're attending a church where you're not exactly being taught the gospel. Because what do we do here at Fighting for the Faith? Well, what we do is we take a listen to the things that are being said out there in, in popular Christianity by popular Christian leaders and just do some comparative work. Is what you're hearing in the Word of God, is this a correct understanding of what God's Word teaches or are you being taught something else? And, uh, well, too many times it's the something else that's being taught. And so as a result of it, if you're attending a church like that, we kind of help you deconstruct that kind of stuff. And as a result of it, you may not, you might send me an, send me an email in the future saying, what am I going to do now, Chris? I get these emails. You know, what am I supposed to do now? Because now I'm not happy with my pastor. So be careful. Warning. This is, this is a show that could disrupt some things. So today we've got a listener email. We're going to be, I got, I'll be reading the one listener email that I thought was interesting regarding transportation in the Holy Spirit. Did you hear, did you hear that yesterday at Joshua Mills? Uh, transportation in the Holy Spirit. He went to China. You know, the Spirit just transported him to China. Did you know that? Wow. Yeah. It's true. I mean, well, not really. But, I mean, it, he, he did say that. It's true that he said that, that he was transported. Does he get frequent fire miles for that? See, I think that would be the downside of the whole transportation via the Holy Spirit is, is that if God's whisking you away spiritually, and he claims he physically touched down in China, that his feet actually, you know, that God whisked him away. And he Actually, what happened is he went up an elevator. And then he was taken to China, and he participated in some kind of a worship service in China. But, of course, he, he said that he felt really like he was not really being able to um, add something to the service. And so he just began speaking in tongues while he was there. That was his contribution. And, of course, he left his card with one of the Chinese guys and then got an email later, a few weeks later, you know, thanking him for coming by. But as far as frequent flyer miles, I don't think so. I just I can't see the frequent flyer miles thing happening. So, uh, yeah, that would definitely be the downside. So um, we, we got that today. We got we got a couple of interesting news stories that we're going to go over today. Um, check this one out. This the, uh, one of the stories is, is that polygamists are now suing uh, to have the word couple redefined. You know, you, you believe you know homosexuals want the word marriage redefined to include them. Well, polygamists now are suing to have the word couple redefined so that it includes them. We're going to read about that, and also we got a story uh, coming out of um, you know off the internet that uh, many teens who are making those virginity pledges, well, they're not keeping them. 
And in fact, they're pretty much neck and neck with uh, the people who aren't even making any pledges whatsoever. And uh, and and there's a there's a thing here about when and when these kids fall off the wagon, they actually fall off pretty hard. So we're gonna we're gonna take a look at that and analyze that a little bit biblically. And then we've got probably what I would consider one of the all time worst Christmas ish sermons. I, I don't even think you can call it a Christmas sermon. Um, I, I don't know if you got have I done a Tad Grandstaff. Uh, sermon review. Don't remember that one. Yeah, this is an interesting guy. He's got a he's got a church out in uh, in in Georgia, I think, is where he's at, and it's a church plant. And uh, you know, I met his I met the guy who helped him, Sean Lovejoy, in his church in Georgia, kind of helped plant Tad Grandstaff and and those guys. They're part of the Church Planters organization. I went to their Evolve conference. Uh, earlier this year, well, Tad Grandstaff, when he when he launched his church, he was actually able to get some national media attention because he sent out a press release, release, and his sermons, his initial opening sermon series was something to the effect of "I hate Christians," and so he Tom Tom Brokaw actually interviewed this guy. Okay, and uh, I, he's one of these angry young church planters. You know, he's kind of in the same group as Stephen Furtick and those guys, and so we're going to be listening to a sermon from Tad Grandstaff and. Um, it's it's part four of his Christmas sermon series, and the name of the sermon series is "You Got Scrooged." <clears throat> but uh, as you will see when when we get into this sermon, this is this is very very different than uh, anything that we've ever <clears throat> reviewed. Well, it's similar, but it, it, we'll see. As far as Christmas sermons are concerned, this was preached the Sunday before Christmas, and yeah, uh, it, it's um, just no bueno, no bueno. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. All right. <clears throat> okay. Got an email here. And um, and uh, I don't know the person's name because uh, all I got is an AOL screen name. And, and yeah, I don't, so I don't know if it's a guy or a gal who emailed me. <clears throat> but they claim that they found where in the, in the scriptures it talks about um, transportation in the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> it's in Acts chapter 8. Let me. So, if you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter eight, and we'll take a look at this. And uh, Acts eight, and <clears throat> story of Philip here. So, l- let me. This is a great story, by the way. Um. So, I'm going to start in verse 26. <clears throat> now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, "This is one of the apostles. Rise and go toward the south <clears throat> to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place." <clears throat> and he rose and went. <clears throat> and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, 
About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about somebody else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So there it is, Acts chapter 8, verse 38, it says, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. So there it is, see, that proves it, right? Doesn't it? No. Do you think Philip got frequent flyer miles? <laughs> well, here's the deal. When you read the text by itself, it's clear that it says that the Spirit whisked him away. Okay, no problem with that whatsoever. What's important to understand, though, is that here's the difference, is that um, in in the book of Acts, in the book in the New Testament, we read about miracles that take place. Okay? So we read about people who are raised from the dead. We read about people who are lame, who receive uh, their ability to walk. We read about the blind who receive their sight. And here we have an example of the Lord basically whisking Philip away. And this is not actually without precedent. There's similar things that happen in the Old Testament with some of the prophets. But here's the deal. Do you think Philip spent a lot of time focusing in on the miracle that took place? No, the miracles that take place all buttress or support the preaching of the gospel. The gospel's the big thing. The miracles are there only to support it. What the what the Joshua Mills, the Patricia Kings of the world, what they're doing is they're focusing in on the miracles as some kind of a means to an end. Like, you know, we're going to experience the glory, right? The glory, biblically, is the gospel itself. The good news that Christ died for our sins, that's the real glory. These guys are basically looking at counterfeit miracles, and that's what they are. I mean, these are charlatans that are basically, they're, they're, they have counterfeit miracles of gold dust and sapphire dust and uh, casting out werewolves and, and you know all that kind of stuff that they're into. Well, what are they focusing in on? They're focusing in on the miracles. But the miracles in the New Testament all support the preaching of the gospel. It's not the main thing. It's just the supporting thing. So we don't have a problem saying, okay, there's there is examples in the in the scripture of these great miracles happening. But the purpose of these miracles is to support and further the preaching of the gospel. And that was the main thing. And so you don't have Philip, you don't have an example of Philip going, wow, man, I was taken up in the glory, dude. And, you know, with wow. And <laughs> none of that. Okay. And in Joshua Mills story that he told about the only thing he was able to do when he got to China his only thing that he did was speak in tongues. So nobody can understand him anyways, right? Even according to the story that he told, his participation was basically useless because nobody could be edified by anything that he said. He was just there to participate in the glory with them. All the more proof that the story is a complete sham. So, <clears throat> by the way, before the show, I took took an opportunity to look this one up. You know, if they really want to, you know, I, I should give Patricia King a call. You know, she she needs to start promoting um, the the spiritual uh, bionic man. Okay, <clears throat> work with me here. Work with me. 
in uh, First Kings, cha- <laughs> First Kings chapter eighteen, we you know we read the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Well, afterwards, there's a, there's a miracle where where Elijah, man, that guy's trucking. I mean, he may as well he he's like Steve Austin. He's the bionic man here. I'm dating myself, aren't I? <laughs> if there are any young people who are listening to this, they're going the bionic what? You know, <clears throat> only six million. Only six million dollars. <laughs> That used to be a lot of money. Yeah. That, well, yeah. Growing up, when I was a kid, when I was in elementary school, um, there was a TV show. I have no clue which which even of the of the three major stations it it showed up on. I don't know if it was ABC, CBS, or NBC. But the basic story was there was a a, a test pilot who had a tragic accident. And, you know, as a result of it, you know, he was completely marred and mangled and, and, you know, you know, an amputee kind of thing. And, and so rather than, you know, just giving him, you know, the, those things for, you know, letting him be wheelchair bound and have those little prosthetics, they, they instead gave, gave him brand new arms and legs that were built out of bionic technology. Right, remember that, and the, and the guy can run like sixty miles an hour, and he can lift a bazillion pounds. And bionic eye too. Yeah, that's right. He had the bionic. In fact, boy, this is going to really sound stupid. I had a bionic man action figure when I was a kid, and you know there was like a hole drilled through his head, in, in the t- <laughs> tiny little. Oh, never mind. So, <clears throat> so I, 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 I'm thinking I need to call Patricia King and, and Joshua Mills and and tell them they really need to start promoting spiritual bionics. Okay, and, and here, here's the uh, here's the passage. It's First Kings chapter eighteen, and it's uh, I'll start at verse forty one. It says Elijah said to Ahab, "Go up and eat and drink, for the, there is the sound of of uh, the rushing of rain." It hadn't rained in Israel for several years because God had given Elijah the ability to basically make it stop raining. And uh, so Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. He bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go up again and, and seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in, in, in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and the wind and there was great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So you got you got Ahab. This wicked king on his chariot heading out from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And then you got this. And then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So somebody on a chariot is going to go faster than somebody who's walking, right? Or who's running. I mean, horses, I don't know if you've noticed, they're a lot faster than we are. And so here we've got, we've got, this is an example of spiritual bionics, right? So I I think we ought to call up Patricia King and Joshua Mills and say the Lord you know it says here in Scripture that if you know that if you're experiencing the glory if you're experiencing the glory then you can run faster than a chariot because Elijah did it right <laughs> John you're looking at me with such incredulity okay I, I don't think so Chris. Yeah, I I understand it's it's a little bit tongue in cheek again <laughs> yeah was the important thing, was the important thing that he ran faster than Ahab on his chariot or was it the important thing that he defended the one true god against idolatry that would be B again right miracles are not the end miracles always point to something they're there to support something and here, there's a day coming there's a day coming. It talks about the man of lawlessness. It talks. Jesus talks about false Christs and false prophets. There's a day coming when 
There will be false Christs and false prophets who are going to be able to perform miraculous signs. And there, and these people, despite the fact that they're performing miraculous signs, those miraculous signs are designed to deceive people. Okay, so always keep this in mind when when you're when when somebody's talking about miracles and things like that. Miracles support a something. They they support a message. And if the message that the miracles are supporting isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the one true God, came to earth to die for your sins, um, and uh, and you know and and that Christianity is the one true religion. If that, if if the miracles that are being performed don't support that message, they're they're false miracles. Okay, and there's a day coming when there's going to be bona fide miracles. I mean, even the skeptics like Penn and Teller and you know people like that, they're going to be they they'll they'll have to admit, hey, wow, that was a real miracle. And the miracles themselves will be false, not because they didn't happen, but because the message that they're supporting. The person that they're asking you to worship isn't Christ, but somebody else. So keep that in mind. Miracles always support something. Anyway, just something, you know, had to point that out. Ah, fighting a little bit of a cold here today. Um, all right. Now, uh, we're on to the news here. Many teens don't keep virginity pledges. This is a, uh, this is from Yahoo News from Yahoo Health, uh, written by Steven Reinberg. Okay, Monday, December 29th from Health Day News. Uh, teens who take virginity pledges are just as likely to have sex as teens who don't make such promises. And they're less likely to practice safe sex to prevent disease or pregnancy, a new study has found. Okay, now, <clears throat> this doesn't surprise me. Okay, and the reason this doesn't surprise me is because when you preach law, law, law and more law and no gospel okay it, you're basically telling somebody to pretty much overcome their sin through really their own power and their own methods right here i took a pledge so we'll see yeah you because know, how many pledges are there in the bible when it talks about these things right you know do you see the teens of the book of acts taking virginity pledges no, which you're basically talking about somehow i'm going to make myself more moral and i'm going to take a pledge to do that it's the same thing as every what is what would it be January first in two days, and what happens every time the calendar clicks? I'm gonna I'm gonna lose weight. I'm gonna stop smoking. I'm gonna you know da, 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 name the thing. You, you know your your new your New Year's resolution. Okay, a virginity pledge is really no better than a New Year's resolution, right? I mean yeah, it's I agree. it yeah. sounds so solemn, sounds so holy, it sounds so moral, but um. Uh, what's what's missing there? The gospel, okay? So uh, previous studies have found that pledgers were more likely to delay having sex than non-pledgers, said study author Janet Rosenbaum, a postdoctoral fellow at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. I used the same data as previous studies, but a different statistical method. This method allowed Rosenbaum to compare those who had taken a virginity pledge with similar teens who hadn't taken a pledge but were likely to delay having sex, she said. She added that she didn't include teens who were unlikely to take a pledge. Virginity pledgers and similar non-pledgers don't differ in the rates of vaginal, oral, or anal sex, you, or any other sexual behavior, Rosenbaum said. Strikingly, pledgers are less likely than similar non-pledgers to use condoms and also less likely to use any form of birth control. 
Wow. So if you've, you've taken the pledge, then, you know, when you fall off the wagon, you really... <clears throat> the findings were published in the January issue of the journal Pediatrics. For the study, Rosenbaum collected data on 934 school students who had never had sex or had taken a virginity pledge. The data came from the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health. Rosenbaum matched students who had taken a virginity pledge with those who hadn't. After five years of follow-up, those who had taken a pledge didn't did not differ from teens who hadn't taken a pledge in rates of premarital sex or any other kind of things. So uh, virginity pledges completely useless at uh, at stopping immorality. And should this surprise us as Christians? The answer, to, I know, shockingly, I'm going to tell you guys, no, this doesn't surprise me at all. Okay. Um, let, let me find this here. <clears throat> Listen to this. Colossians chapter 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, that's Colossians chapter two. And you're going to sit there and go, well, Chris, what are you saying? Are you just saying that we should just tell our kids that they could go ahead and have sex? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is that if you really want to have an impact on your children, you preach the law to condemn sins and you preach the gospel to offer forgiveness and comfort for sins. Why? Because it says in scripture that the gospel is the message that that God uses to literally create Christians. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10 says. So as a result of it, do you believe God or not when God says that when somebody has faith, that they go from being a goat to being a sheep, that they go from being dead spiritually to being alive spiritually, they go from being an, uh, an enemy of God to somebody who isn't an enemy of God, who loves God, somebody who God is now sanctifying, God is now working in, and that they have the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that they will receive be- through faith. Do you believe the Do you believe the Bible or not? Okay. So if that's the case, you really want to put a you really want to make a dent in in the the teen sex issue. Stop preaching the law exclusively, and then getting people to make a pledge. You know, because you I went through these things, man. I I didn't take a pledge, but you know, I have sat through the moralizing teaching of 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 a Christian high school and the Nazarene church and the, and the sermons and the, and the teaching goes something like this. Teen sex is terrible. God hates it and you'll get punished and you're going to lose your salvation and you could get pregnant and you can get a disease and you could die, you know? And then what do they, what do they do? They, you know, they always go out and they interview, you know, they'll, they'll have some kid give a testimony says, yeah, you know, I never, I never had sex until that one time I had a moment, a momentary lapse and I only had it once, but then I contracted AIDS and now I'm dying tomorrow. You know, that's, and so, and so that, because of that kid's testimony, but I thank you, Jesus, that, that you, you love me and, and just as I am. And then everybody says, okay, I want to take that pledge because I don't want to have that happen to me. Right. That's how these things go. Okay. And, and I'm telling you, <coughs> scripture says that if you're going to do that, really what you're doing, if you're preaching the law, you're going to actually inflame someone's passions. Okay. And if, if, 
the right thing to do is to preach the law and the gospel. You preach the law to condemn sins and show what God's standards are and show them how people, how they're not meeting up to it in all aspects. I mean, it's, it's not as if, okay, it's not as if Jesus said that the only way that you can commit sexual immorality is if you actually do the deed, right? <laughs> okay, so I've got news for you all. I'm an adulterer. So are you. Unless you can honestly, honestly, honestly say that you've never, ever looked lustfully at a member of the opposite sex. Can you say that? No. No. Okay. Again, so the reason so you got to understand, you got to have a very high view of sin to understand what's going on here. It's not as if, if I were to just say, okay, I've never done that, therefore I'm pure in this area. Hogwash. The problem is, is that I'm a sinner through and through, and that's the reason why I sin. Okay, and the Christian lives in that tension, you know, between the now and the not yet. The justified, you know, declared righteous before God and still sinful at the same time, which is why Paul says that he's the chief of sinners, right? Or Paul in Romans 7 says, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death, right? So the thing is, is that, you know, if you really, you, you want people to love God, okay, True love, fear, and trust in God only comes when God gives you faith. And then from that true love and fear and trust in God, God sanctifies people. The Holy Spirit convicts people and changes their mind. They go from, you know, you know, and so what happens is you do see, you know, there, the, an impact that the gospel has on people's lives as it impacts morality. But that, it has to come from the gospel. It has to flow from the gospel. It has to be a fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is completely, you know, these virginity pledges are completely divorced from the Holy Spirit. You know, they Oh, what do you need the Holy Spirit to take a virginity pledge? No, I do you need so. Christ and him crucified to take a virginity pledge? No, 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 you don't. OK, so this isn't even a biblical means. And we're not, by the way, folks, <clears throat> just a little uh, this little side here. The Christian church has not been called to go and clean up the world and make it a more moral place. If you want the world to be a more moral place, preach the gospel. This is the Bible is not a book on morality. Well, actually, there is a lot of morals in the in. Okay, it's it's it, 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 it got to be careful here. Okay, the scriptures do tell us what is right and wrong. What is what is behavior that's conducive with God's character and stuff that's in rebellion to it. Okay, but the primary purpose of the law. Remember, there's three purposes. Okay, purpose number one is to uh, keep us from beating up on each other and stealing each other's stuff. Okay, that's the use that's used by the law, the legal authorities. Okay, the police, the government. Second is the primary use to convict you of your sin, and the third is to show you what a good work is. Okay, but the third use is only for Christians. Okay, and it flows from the gospel. Okay, so here's the deal: you fear, love, and trust in God through faith, so that through the workings of the Holy Spirit and God sanctifying you, you then don't do these things. But you have to preach law and gospel. And the problem with these these morality pledges of any kind is that, it first of all, you're trying to do it on your own power. Second, the gospel is completely devoid of it. And it's a, it's a misunderstanding of the, of the use of the laws. It, it's not even a proper use of the law. Okay? Yeah, I know what God's law is, so I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and not do it. I don't think you could do that, Chris. I... You know, John, <clears throat> you're right, but it just it upsets me that you're right. <laughs> <laughs> 
so there it is. Sad news that these uh, more, these virginity pledges don't work, but I'm not surprised at all. So Christian church, what are we called to do? Are we called to go and clean up the world? Well, if the cl- world is cleaned up, that's a benefit of one thing and one thing only, the preaching of the gospel. Go and make disciples. Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Go and focus on that. Believe me when I tell you, that's the message that, 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 that that's the only gospel that God's going to use to convert people, right? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Go and focus on that. And what will happen is, is that God will give people faith, raise them from the dead, sanctify them, and God will curb their moral inclinations through, 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 through his word and through his sacraments. But don't it's it's these it's, it's it's the same thing as Joshua Mills and the gang. Work with me here for a second. What Joshua Mills and Patricia King they make miracles an end to itself. There's so many Christians out there that make morals an end in, in and of itself. I'm sorry, but morals their pri- the, the primary purpose of the law is to show us how immoral we are and, and and really show us our need for a savior. Okay, it's only when we understand how depraved we are, understand how sinful we are, understand the debt that we owe God, and and that we can begin to truly begin to apprehend on some level how great the good news is, that, that Christ has done it all for us, okay? And what does Christ say? He who's been forgiven much loves much, right? Okay, so folks, you know, there's great stories in the New Testament of prostitutes who left prostitution, as a result of the God, the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Okay, you want kids, you want these kids to to leave their immorality. Preach the gospel, give them Christ, because the do not taste, do not touch, and all these rules and regulations they have no power whatsoever to stop sinful behavior. But the gospel does. The gospel is the thing that does. All right, we're going to be right back. If you would like to email me. And uh, let me know that, you know, no, no, we've got, we can't just, we can't give up on these uh, <clears throat> morality pledges. Feel free to talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. And we will be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Fighting for the Faith is underwritten in part by LifeLock. Did you know that identity theft is a $50 billion a year business? And the severe downturn in the economy is providing identity thieves with even more incentives to hijack your identity and destroy your good name. But LifeLock provides a proactive identity theft service specializing in the prevention of identity theft rather than the reporting of it. LifeLock was founded in 2005 and is already considered the industry leader in identity theft prevention. In fact... 
LifeLock CEO Todd Davis is so confident in LifeLock's ability to protect your good name and stop identity thieves dead in their tracks that he freely shares his social security number on television, radio, and the Internet. Furthermore, LifeLock guarantees its services up to $1 million. For more information on LifeLock, visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the LifeLock logo on our homepage. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Exalt Christ and Him crucified. That's the gospel. And that's what God uses to change lives. You know, the primary focus of American evangelicalism right now, it, it, it's on the, uh, the salvation experience and then moral improvement, Right. But that's not that's not what we're called to focus on. We're called to to preach the gospel, Christ, yeah, Christ and Him crucified, and from all pages of Scripture, of all things, right? Dorothy Sayers, she she basically you know said that's the plot. It's the best plot line out there. Okay, it's the best plot line in any book. It's so compelling. Why would we exchange Christ crucified for our sins for just mere moralism and and some kind of experience or whatever? I don't understand why we would exchange the rich story of Christ crucified for our sins and everything that flows from that and the implications that flow from it about who God is, what he thinks about us, what he's done on our behalf, how he was that was promised from the beginning when Adam and Eve fell in the garden and was fulfilled in Christ, you know, all the way back to the Christmas story too, you know, and how that all plays into it. How would we exchange that incredible storyline that the God who created us, who we rebelled against, stepped into human history and saved us from his own wrath. Why would we exchange that for moralism? Folks, I'm telling you, you know, the the definition of insanity is uh, trying the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. Okay. Preaching moralism and, and somehow thinking that, that state Senate bill 284 is going to be able to, to make the, the United States a more moral nation hogwash. You can't legislate morality, Chris. Well, you know, here's the deal. You can, in a sense that first use of the law is to keep us from beating up on things, you know, be, beating up on people. And, you know, it per, per, basically provides a deterrent. If you do these, if you want to go with this, the, that behavior, we're either going to tax it or we're going to punish it. Right. Okay. And so, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the people are more moral because those, those laws have been put into place. So if you make alcohol illegal, people will stop drinking alcohol. Right. Cause that's what prohibition proved. Right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> there, you know, my grandfather, he was actually arrested, um, during prohibition. The it, it, true story. Uh, my, my grandfather grew up in Brooklyn and, um, and he was kind of a street thug kind of guy. Polish uh, comes from a Polish immigrant family in Brooklyn. My grandmother was an Irish immigrant, so you know how the never mind. So, but during Prohibition, he was making great money working in a speakeasy in Brooklyn. And wouldn't you know, the feds actually raided the place and they arrested him, and he spent a little time in jail. You know, but uh, as everyone knows, I mean, once they put prohibition into effect, everybody in the United States stopped getting drunk and drinking, and that and the the U.S. was a more moral place, right? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. You want to have an impact? Stop focusing on the moralizing and preach Christ and him crucified. That's the message that we've been given, and that's the message that converts people. Right? Yes. All right. So just want to make sure we got that straight. Moving on to our next story. Um, <laughs> could have saw this coming. Polygamous sue to redefine the word couple. Okay. This is from the Creative Minority Report website, which, by the way, is a Catholic blog. And I read it because the guy, you know, he, he's, a, he's a smart Catholic. Can't say I agree with most of anything that he says, but I, I just find him compelling. Anyway, he says a large group of polygamists announced today that they intend to sue the government and the dictionary makers to change the definition of the word couple. For too long, the term couple has been narrowly defined as two people, and that's practically the definition of discrimination to groups of three or more, reads the press release from the ACLU. <sighs> So the battle for marriage is taking on a new uh, – is, is, we're now opening up a second front. Uh, all this coming, didn't you? Yeah, he uh, could have predicted this. Many people consider the next civil rights struggle of our time, and there are many victims of this narrow definition of the word. Quote, do you know how hurtful it is for us to hear two people referred to as a cute couple when I know that I will it will never be said about our little family of one husband and seven wives, said one female polygamist? It breaks my heart every time I hear the word. Well, see, because, see, that's the thing. In America, what's the cardinal sin? Being offended and having your feelings hurt, right? So there we go. Um, so there's a new thing going on. So, okay, anyway, polygamists say the discrimination is hidden but prevalent in society and they feel excluded from attending couples' resorts or even attending couples' counseling. One polygamist said her husband and three other wives showed up for couples' counseling and there were only two chairs set up. She said that they had to seek out a therapist to get over the, that trauma before they could even return to the couples' counseling. And, and, and all that therapy gets expensive, she said. Mathematicians and scientists say that a change in the definition of the word couple could promote could produce problems in their respective fields. In in science, coupling reaction represents a range of reactions in organic chemistry. Uh, in, uh, sorry, organometallic chemistry, where two hydrocarbon hydrocarbon radicals are coupled with the aid of a metal containing a catalyst. A couple is a couple, said one anti polygamous polygamous mathematician who declined to be named for fear of public ostracization. In case you don't know, this is actually a little bit of satire. <laughs> but I had to read it because that the story itself is satire. It is designed it's designed to be humor. But listen to what it said there. Okay. What makes this what made it so believable there for a second is the fact that, you know, here we are, we're fighting over the the how to define the word marriage. Okay. So much so that it has created this ginormous clash in our culture. Okay, in 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 the United States, where Christians are being accused of being haters, why? Because they're basically, as American citizens, they're voting against redefining the word marriage. Well, in, if the, in the same token, if if really we can decide what a word means by voting on it, right? Think about it. Okay, we don't like the word couple. Well, polygamists in in Utah, it well. It, Technically, they would be like in northern Arizona and southern Utah. There's pockets of polygamy uh, that go on there. And I, I'm going to tell you, um, 
the polygamists have a far better case uh, of basically saying, listen, you shouldn't discriminate against us because biblically, look at all the guys that had multiple wives out there. You got Abraham, you got uh, Jacob, you've got uh, you've got David, you got Solomon. I mean, all of these are godly men, and look at all the wives they had, right? And not forget forget just the wives they had not only had wives, they had concubines. Okay, so I mean, the polygamist has got a far better biblical case out there to to push for the redefining of marriage and a couple than uh, the homosexuals do, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah, that's what I thought. John didn't want to have to say it. Okay. <clears throat> but who 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 decides what marriage is? God does. Christ does. And basically, Christ basically defines it's Himself, Himself alone, who defines marriage as, you know, really the way it was supposed to be in the beginning: Adam and Eve, one couple, man and wife. That was what it was designed to be. Okay. And, uh, you know, all this other stuff. Yeah. The question is, why does God allow it? You know, well, there's, let's just say that, uh, Christ has died for a lot of sins, <laughs> a lot of sins. And I'll tell you this from a polygamy point of view. What I think is interesting is, is that without a clear prohibition against polygamy, um, you, you, saying you, for instance, you can't, you can, is it possible for somebody to be a Christian and a polygamist? The answer is absolutely yes. Okay. But can they hold a position in the church? The answer is no. Okay. So what happens is, is that in, in scripture where it says that, you know, the, the qualifications of an elder are that he's the husband of one wife, you know, that rules out polygamy and, and points back to what the real definition of marriage is. It's marriage is between one, you know, one man and one woman, monogamous, you know, for, for their lifetime. But, um, but here's the deal because there's no explicit thou shalt not have multiple wives kind of things like that. Because of that, it makes it possible for us to witness to Mormons and Muslims and basically share the gospel with them and their wives. And if, if Christ so converts them, you don't have to worry about busting up a family per se. Think about it. It's a little bit on the odd side as far as Roseboro's thinking is concerned. But, um, you know, again, the, the, the issue is we preach Christ and him crucified and let the gospel do its work. And even now, I, I, I think in some senses, you know, we're, we're a little, little entrenched on this culture war regarding the homosexuality thing. My, my concern is, is that are we preaching the gospel to the homosexuals or are we just telling them how wrong their lifestyle is? You want to make a difference? You really want to make an impact? Preach the gospel. Because it's about Christ. It's really about what he has done for them. What he's done for you and me. Preach the gospel. Anyway, so that was an interesting little bit of humor here. Okay, we're going to dive into the next segment. We're not going to go very long today. But we've got a great... Uh, no, it's, it's not great. It's a bad sermon. It's it. This definitely qualifies as probably one of the worst sermons I've heard lately. Oh man, uh, the the church is Pine Ridge Church. Um, let me let me find this on the internet here. Pine Pine Ridge Church, and the pastor's name is Tad Grandstaff. And uh, Tad, um, yeah, yeah, this interesting guy. I, I've been in the same room with him, and uh, you know, just 
he launched Pine Ridge Church with a sermon series basically talking about how he hates Christians and actually got national media attention uh, and had Brokaw interview him and everything. You know, this this new breed of evangelical, you know, church planners. And um, let's listen to the sermon. And we'll, I, I, I wish I could tell you exactly what to expect here. But keep in mind, this was preached the Sunday before Christmas. This is part four of their Christmas sermon series called You've Been Scrooged. Okay. And uh, with that in mind, uh, here we go. All right, all right. Some of y'all have a hangover from last night, from our worship night. Normally when we come out... A hangover. Some of you have a hangover from last night, from their worship night. So they've been either drinking or getting high. Uh, From worship. Oh, oh. It's a worship hangover. (laughs) Do any of y'all get any worship hangovers? I, I don't think I've ever had one of those. No, I haven't either. Um... Do you get a headache? Yeah, that's a question. If you've ever had a, I'd like to know if you've ever had a worship hangover. An email would be in line here. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. I'd like to know what you know. It, it, it does it have the normal symptoms of like a normal hangover, where you know bright lights or you know are a little yeah you know, like that headache thing that goes on. You know maybe you, you spend the day in bed with a malaise. You know you know I, as you can tell, I've had a lot of hangovers. No, I haven't. But um, so is is a worship hangover the same as a? Never mind. Moving along. On Sunday morning, at our nine o'clock service, it's like the early service, and we're trying to get into the emotion. But this is service number three for us this weekend. We had two incredible services last night for our night of worship. Let me just tell you, if you missed that last night, you missed out. You missed the awesome, awesome night. That first service, a six o'clock service last night, we packed this place. To the walls, and the band did a phenomenal, phenomenal job leading us in a night of worship. I'm glad you're here this morning. We're going to jump right into our message today. Today we are wrapping up our Scrooged teaching series. It's week four. It's the last week. And you know this whole theme we've kind of kept in line with the whole Scrooge theme. And so like the first week of this series, it was called Bah Humbug. And then we had Christmas past. And last week we had Christmas present. And this week is Christmas future. But I want to kind of abandon the whole Christmas theme for a minute. And I just want to focus on our future today. Is that cool? Can we just kind of jump out of the Christmas theme for just a minute? Now remember, this is a sermon preached the week before Christmas. And he wants to jump out of the whole Christmas theme and talk about their future. This is... <clears throat> you would... Okay, here's the deal. When you look... What I've noticed is, is that all of these uh, church planner podcasts that I happen to subscribe to... Why? Because I'm a glutton for punishment. And I like finding oddball sermons to play for you all to kind of demonstrate what's going wrong in Christianity today. Why? Because then I can tell you what the right thing is. It's 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 all about the foil, man. It's all about the foil. So here we go. What I've noticed about their podcasts is is that a, a lot of these churches they didn't actually have a Christmas Day service. Okay, they they because Christmas didn't fall on a Sunday, they didn't have a Christmas service. And if, a couple years ago, Christmas fell on a Sunday, and you know what these guys did? They closed their doors. They didn't even have Christmas services. Okay, you wouldn't want to go to a church on Christmas. I mean, who who would want to do that? That's not seeker sensitive. So, okay, so here we've got the the sermon before Christmas. This was preached on the 21st of January. 
right? Or is it the 20th? Uh, December. Sorry. I don't know, man. <sighs> I, mean, I keep having those mental lapses. I, I'm getting old. It, you know, and somebody just said, Roxy Lee sent me an email just a couple days ago. Says you're not old. You're not old. <laughs> Repeating that, I'm going okay. Well, <laughs> apparently I am. Um, so this is preached in December, four days before Christmas, and you would think we were talking about who Jesus Christ, right? Was was if you're gonna, isn't it Christians who are out there complaining about the fact they're taking Christ out of Christmas? That there, there's there was. There was a whole. There was even a, a. I read a news story over the holiday of a of a, a group of people, uh, like a hundred of them that dressed up as Jesus Christ and and went around the town, in order to put Christ back into Christmas. Okay, so you got all these major complaints about the fact that Christ is being taken out of Christmas by people who are supposedly Christians, right? And here we got Tad Grandstaff the Sunday before Christmas. Um, he wants to get off the Christmas thing, and he's not interested in preaching about Christ at Christmas. Shouldn't we be picketing pastors who don't want to preach Christ during Christmas? Just never mind. <clears throat> here we go. I know we got some Christmas worship going on, and that's real cool, and we're a couple days away from Christmas. But I just want to share with you some things today that God's laid on my heart. Like, I've been wrestling with some stuff for the last couple months. And today, my prayer is that the truth that God has been revealing to me, the truth that He has been speaking to me about... Gotta stop there. Uh, Okay, you heard that right. He's going to actually preach a sermon about things he believes that God is laying on his heart. So he's not even going to crack open his Bible, per se. He's going to preach about what he thinks God is laying on his heart. Is he a prophet? Is Tad Grandstaff, uh, you know, really good buddies with Jesus? I mean, does does Jesus send him text messages and emails? Serious. I want to know. What do you think? So he's going to literally preach about the things that God is laying in his heart. He says he's going to pray that God would help them understand the things that God has been laying on his heart. Well, apparently the Bible's not necessary, Right. <clears throat> Sean, love, uh, uh, Sean, uh, are you listening? I'm gonna, I'm gonna email him a copy of this. Sean Lovejoy, this is his buddy. That, that truth will overflow this morning. That it will pour into your life, and that God will reveal to you some of the awesome things that He's been revealing to me. God has been showing me some. So he's, he, I'm sorry, he's preaching about what he thinks God is talking to him about. No need for a Bible. He's got direct. He's got a direct connect with Jesus, man things this morning and my prayer today is that you will leave here understanding your full potential that you will leave here understanding that god has plans for your future and god wants to rock your world and he's got some greatness in store for you okay so god's been laying this on his heart that we have great potential and he's got greatness in store for us really no wonder he's not reading this from the bible because he can't produce a single passage to uh, get this. Instead, he's getting this directly from God. Forget the Bible. Let's just go straight to God. God wants us to know that we, you have great potential. See, I believe more than ever that God wants us to leave where we are right now. And he wants us to go to the place that he ultimately has for us. But it's going to require us to do some things this morning. Oh, law. Okay. We're going to be talking about those things. I believe more than ever, God has greatness in our future. 
He has greatness planned for our future. And some of you walked in here this morning and you're like, um, future, greatness. Dad, you don't really understand what I've been through. You don't really. No, you don't really understand the Bible. You don't understand anything. If you think that the Christian message is that God has greatness for us. There's these places at Anaheim that read your palm and they have crystal balls. Yeah, I have no idea. You know, he may be, you know, he might be sp- spending some time smoking some of Joel Osteen's books. To understand the hand I've been dealt. Tad, there's no, there's no greatness in my future. I can't achieve things. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. There's no way. Tad, I got some doubts. I doubt God could do anything with my life. Let me tell you something this morning. I have no doubt. No doubt that God has future greatness in store for your life. I believe he has a plan and a purpose. And today he wants you to achieve greatness. Like he's already orchestrated. He's already designed. He has a plan for your life. And today you can achieve greatness. Really? Really? Isn't that great news? I mean, this is a, that's good news, isn't it? That's, uh, you can achieve greatness. That's great news, isn't it? Psychic friends said the same kind of thing. Uh, you know, you, you keep pulling the negative stuff out. You know, what's wrong with you? You know, um, <clears throat> isn't that great news? That's a great gospel, isn't it? <laughs> you're designed for greatness. Yeah. But is that the gospel we've been given to preach? No, not at all. No. What's the gospel we've been given? First uh, Corinthians 15 for I pass on. Well, let me pull this up. I'm going to mess it up in First Corinthians 15:1. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, that I preached to you. Gospel, euangelion, meaning good news, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures; that He was buried and He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures; and then He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. That's the good news, right? Christ died for our sins. This guy is preaching good news. You're designed for greatness. And where did he say he was getting this from? God, God told him directly. God, yeah, God told him directly and laid it on his heart. Oh, man. Okay. So uh, should we believe this guy? I wouldn't. No. I, I, I. Why should I believe him? Because he's not pointing me to Christ. He's pointing me ultimately to himself and having me look at myself in strange and bizarre ways. But um, let me read this, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Okay? Last days, Scripture says there will be times of difficulty. How bad is it going to be? Well, it will be so bad that people will become lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Avoid such people. Paul continues in chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in the kingdom, to preach the word. Is he is Tad Grandstaff preaching the word here? Not yet. No, so far no good. Um, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. 
but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So you think the idea of preaching to somebody that you are designed for greatness. God's got greatness. That's what God's been laying on my heart. Forget the Bible. God's been laying it on my heart that you're, you got, God's got great plans for you, and he's going to do some great things with you. You think that would qualify as um, as uh, teaching something that, you know, for people's itching ears? Oh, definitely. Uh-huh. To, to suit their own passions? Yeah. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the myths. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 says, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So is it a myth or is it really true? That that the Christian message is that you are designed for greatness. A myth. I think that falls yeah, clearly. It's an Ostinian myth, right? Your best life now, how to become a better you, all right? And um, this has nothing to do with the truth. And he's, again, what's his authority that he's giving us? God's laid this on his heart. I don't think it was God. I bet you anything it was the devil. Just, you know, if I had to wager, if it was God or the devil, I would go with the devil. Or it could be just his own delusions of grandeur. We continue. I believe that wholeheartedly. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God has greatness in your future? Because he does. As I said earlier, it's going to require us to do some things, though. It's going to require you and I to do some things. We're going to be talking about those things. But Oh, yeah, greatness with strings attached. You know, this is a you have to do this and then God will do that kind of greatness. But I want to start with the story this morning. Back in 2001. You think he's, if he's going to start with a story, he might crack open a Bible? No, he's not. Listen. One, I was living in Lynchburg, Virginia. Lynchburg, Virginia, just about two hours away. I was born and raised there. The Berg. Some people will know about the Berg because some people in this room lived in the Berg for a while as well. I lived in the Berg of Lynchburg, and I spent almost 22 years of my life there. Like, everything I knew was in Lynchburg. Like, my family was in Lynchburg. My friends were in Lynchburg. All my poor decisions I made were in Lynchburg. My career was in Lynchburg. Everything I knew was in Lynchburg. I was working for one of the largest churches in America. My dad was on staff and still is on staff at one of the largest churches in America. I had some power. I had some clout. I was comfortable. I was secure. I was somebody in Lynchburg, Virginia. Like, uh, Who's he preaching about? Himself. Himself, yeah. That qualifies as a me-centered uh, <clears throat> example, huh? I was this and I had power and I had that and I did this and I it sounds a lot like Satan and from the book of Isaiah, doesn't it? Oh man. Again, I I warned you ahead of time. This is probably closest to the worst Christmas sermon. Can you call it this a Christmas sermon? No, because he said he's gonna Yeah, that's he, right. He he left the whole Christmas thing yeah, behind. Yeah. But it was preached this is a Christless sermon during the Christmas season. So this is the Sunday before Christmas. Oh yeah. It's that bad. Anyway, we're gonna take our second break and we'll be right back. If you'd like to email me and let me know that God has laid it on your heart that you and me and everybody else are designed for greatness. Email me, talk back at fighting for the face faith dot com. We'll be right back.
if you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn Radio Program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. Available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com or the big picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. And uh, we're in the middle of doing a sermon review. I'm going to have to send this off to Sean Lovejoy. Met Sean. He's a nice guy. And he defends his church planners, you know, very strongly. But he's got one here who shouldn't be doing what he's doing. He should be brought up on heresy charges for claiming that uh, what God is laying on his heart is somehow equivalent to Scripture. And this message isn't uh, anywhere near what we should be hearing. Uh, any pastor who calls himself a Christian pastor, as far as this, as far as what they should be preaching. Anyway, so we continue. This is uh, part four of the uh, "You've Been Scrooged" Christmas sermon series by Tad Grandstaff of Pine Ridge Church, and uh, and so far he's uh, exegeting himself, himself, his life. Yeah, here we go. Like everything I had was in Lynchburg, Virginia. Everything I knew was in Lynchburg, Virginia. As I said, I was working for this church. I was making a decent living. It wasn't anything incredible. Like, I was able to pay my bills. I was able to live life. I was living in this house with a couple other interns. And and the good part about living in this house is it was free. It wasn't the best living, but it was included in my salary. So all the utilities, all the rent, everything was free. So it kind of helped out a little bit with what I got paid. It kind of compensated that. But I remember one morning I was laying in bed. And more than ever in my life, I woke up about 6.30 in the morning and I thought God speaking to me. And as a college student, waking up at 6.30 in the morning is like waking up at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, uh, God, seriously, like, can, can, you, can you just wait a minute? Like, 
is God really awake at 6.30? I'm like, God, can you, can you hit snooze for just a little bit? Like, I'm trying to sleep in this morning. Okay, so God is speaking to him, and it's, it's an inconvenient time, and he's basically saying, hey, God, can you just wait for a better... Con- right. The God of the universe that created the heavens and the earth in six days wants to speak with him at 6.30, and he wants to hit the snooze bar? Uh, what does this tell you about who he thinks God is? He thinks he's God and that God's subservient to him. He's created God in his image. Yeah, apparently. Let's continue. And all of a sudden, I felt God telling me in my heart, he was speaking to me, and he was like, Tad, look, you need to be prepared to pack up all your stuff because I got somewhere I want to take you. Oh, so he's the new Abraham, right? Leave Ur of the Chaldeans and uh, and head out to uh, the, the, the promised land, right? I got someplace I want to take you. I want you to move from where you are to where I, where I ultimately want you to be. And I was like, huh? You, you want me to go where, God? I mean, like, what do you want me to do with my life? Where am I supposed to go? Where am I going to work? Like, God, who are you talking to? How do you know it was God, Tad? Serious. I mean, how do you know it wasn't the devil? How do you know it wasn't your imagination? Maybe you need to go see somebody for this problem. Hearing voices. Right. You know, how do you know? I mean, why should I believe that it was God, you know, Jesus Christ, who is speaking to you? Because when I listen to the fruit of your preaching, the only thing I hear is uh, you. And I don't hear uh, Christ. And I hear messages that are not even in accord with sound doctrine. And in fact, they're pure myth. Why should any of us, including yourself, believe that it was God talking to you? All right, here we go. Well, I'm not going anywhere, God. So I was like, look, we can talk about this later. I'm going back to sleep. We can we can pick this up later on. To- Obviously has such a profound, you know, sense of awe and wonder regarding God. Um, Was it Isaiah? In, let me find this passage. Uh, Isaiah, when he, he ascended to heaven, right? Um. What was what is this passage? Let's see. Oh man, let me find the word undone, and I want to find it in the Old Testament. Okay, hang on a second here. Apologize, we're doing this computer Bible style. Um, no, it's not there. Um, lips. That's what I want. Where he says that he's a man of unclean lips. You know what I'm talking about? Mm. Ha, here it is. <laughs> it's Isaiah 6. Okay, Isaiah 6. Just, I want to do a little comparative work here. Um, hang on a second here. I hit the wrong button on my computerized Bible. Just compare Tad Grandstaff's attitude towards God. Remember, this is the God who created the heavens and the earth, the the God who came to earth in human flesh. At Christmas time, we, we, we actually talk about that a little bit. Um, born in a manger, king of kings, lord of lords, died on a cross for our sins. Um, listen to this. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
you, you remember when Moses met with with God on Mount Sinai? I mean, when he came down, his face was glowing, right? They, I mean, they, he had to cover his face. He had to cover his face. Remember when God gave the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai and there was thundering and lightning and the people were terrified and shaking in their boots? Remember that? Okay. Or you got you you know and other examples like when John was taken up to you know and had a vision of heaven and angels and he was on his face and anytime somebody comes in contact with the holy it seems like they're on their face or their fear. And what's the first words out of the mouths of angels? Fear not. Yeah. Okay. Why would they have to say that? Scary. Yeah. When when we sinners you know actually encounter the holy they don't look like cherubs. I don't know what they look like. It doesn't say what they look like, John. But when we encounter the holy, it generally we're freaked out. Okay. Uh, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay? Do you think uh, Isaiah had some kind of awe, wonder? Uh, he was terrified, right? Why? Because he realized he was a sinner. So compare that to Tad Grandstaff's encounter with God. In fact, the way he's describing this, you'd almost think that God was his dog. Okay, come up and, hey, Tad, Tad, hey, I got something I'm going to tell you. Hey, no, hey, man, can you do this later, man? Can you, listen to this. And he was like, Tad, look, you need to be prepared to pack up all your stuff because I got somewhere I want to take you. I got someplace I want to take you. I want you to move from where you are to where I, where I ultimately want you to be. And I was like, huh? You, you want me to go where, God? I mean, like, what do you want me to do with my life? Where am I supposed to go? Where am I going to work? Like, God, who are you talking to? Well, I'm not going anywhere, God. So I was like, look, we can talk about this later. I'm going back to sleep. We can, we can pick this up later on today when I wake up about noon. But right now, God, I'm going back to bed. And I rolled over, went back to sleep. Suddenly in that moment, there was a, like a dark cloud hovered over my bed. And, and in this loud voice, God began to speak audibly to me with lightning and thunder. No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. But, but some of y'all are like, whoa. Whoa. No, no, that didn't, that didn't happen. God didn't speak to me audibly. He didn't come into the room. It wasn't like one of these, these, these Moses moments where God just screamed out at me through a burning bush or anything like that. But, but let me tell you what happened. Seriously, let me, let me tell you how the story went down. Later that morning... I was oh, 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 woke up again from my cell phone ringing. And literally, I picked up my cell phone and answered my cell phone, and it was my old youth pastor. It was a guy named Brian Beloy. Brian Beloy was my youth pastor back in, in, in my senior year. All right, six minutes, 44 seconds into the sermon, zero references to God's Word in the Bible, and all kinds of claims about God's Word directly from God. He's exegeting, apparently, this experience that God spoke to him. He left to go plant a church in Atlanta, Georgia, and to make you feel really old, I was a senior in high school in 1998, so if that makes you feel old this morning, that's on you. But anyway, so my senior year, he left to go plant this church down in Atlanta, and he called me, 
That's what he said. He said, Tad, I believe that God wants you to leave where you're at, come down here to be part of this church. I believe more than ever he wants you to be here. And he goes, and here's the deal. I have no clue where you're going to live. I can pay you about a fourth of what you're making right now. I have no position for you at this church besides for you to serve with our youth. He said, but I believe more than ever, God wants you to be here with us. I believe God wants you to be part of Westridge Church, and I need you here by the end of the month. So apparently this other pastor divined that uh, Tad needed to be part of his church using the force. You know, there's, these are some kind of uh, church-planting Jedi, you know. <clears throat> Let me continue. I don't know how to, re- I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> I, I, Brian, I don't know how to respond to that. I'm going to have to get back to you. I'm going to have to get back to you. And in that moment, I sat on my bed, and I heard God so clear in my heart say, Tad, I want you to leave where you are to go where I ultimately want you to be. And so I did just that. I packed up my stuff. I moved down to Atlanta, Georgia. Had no clue what God had for my future. But all I knew was that God had called me to leave where I was to go where he ultimately wanted me to be. And today that leads into my first point today. If you and I are ever going to achieve our future greatness, it will always require you and me to leave. If we're ever going to achieve greatness in our life, it will always require you and I to leave something, to leave something behind, to leave a state of mind, to leave a situation that we're involved in. It will always require us to leave. All right, so there we go. Um, okay, no gospel. Well, actually, his gospel, he has good news to offer people. That is, is that God wants him to have greatness. But it's not the biblical gospel, okay? And there's strings attached. In order to have this greatness, you have to be willing to leave. And he says, always. You always have to get, you know, always. Okay, so rule number one for for this gospel, condition number one, sorry. Condition number one for if you want to have greatness. You see, there, there's the good news. God wants you to have greatness. So we'll put down on my, I'm writing down this on my piece of paper here. Greatness, condition, conditional clause number one is have to leave. What Bible verses did he use for these, Chris? Um, I haven't heard any yet. Oh, okay. Have you heard any? No, no, I was just checking. Just checking. Yeah, I, I, you know, if, if you hear one, let me know. Um, he might pull one out. We'll see. Um, you know, it's it's early in the sermon. We're eight minutes and 25 seconds into it. I mean, it's a warm-up, right? But he's claiming that uh, he's, exe- he's exegeting God speaking to him. Some of you in this room this morning, if you're ever going to make an impact on someone's life, if God's ever going to use you to change someone's life, if God's ever going to use you to be an influence in your family and your friends, it will always require you to leave. Like anytime God has greatness planned for you, you will always be required to leave. This morning we're going to pick up a story in Genesis about a guy named Abram, you're going to see in Scripture his name. Oh, here we go. We Now we're eight minutes and 50 seconds in, and we're going to talk about Abram. Of course... I picked up the parallels immediately, though. Notice that he's, his life parallels Abraham's. Who is this sermon really about? Yeah. Him, yeah, okay. His name is Abram. God later changes his name to Abraham, so I'm going to refer to him as Abraham. So that'll kind of catch you up on where we're at this morning, and the story is going to kind of tell the story for you instead of stage for where we're going. We're going to pick up our story in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. It said, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. 
I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Okay, I got to stop there. Okay. This is an interesting passage. And remember, one of the things I strongly advocate is preaching Christ from all the texts of Scripture. This is a passage of Scripture, you know, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, that the gospel is so clear that you have to almost be blind to miss it. Okay. Listen to this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. How, how, how is it that Abram's was a blessing to the nations? Through Christ. The way that God blessed all of the world through Abraham was through the promised child, ultimately, that God gave Abraham. And we're not talking about Isaac. We're talking about Jesus. Okay? This story is about Jesus. The plot line is Jesus and him coming to earth to save us. Okay. And it's right there. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's okay. This is, this is a passage of scripture that so clearly points to Christ. You have to be blind to miss it, but let's see what he does with it. Here's what we have to understand today. A life of leaving is a life of faith. God is always trying to get us to leave where we are, to take us where he wants us to be. And what we have to understand this morning is, is to leave doesn't always mean we have to go somewhere geographically. It doesn't mean that you're always going to be... So a life of leaving is a life of faith. Really, is that what that passage says? The passage points us so clearly to Jesus Christ. Like I said, you have to be blind to miss it. But then again... He's kind of preaching about himself, isn't he? Required to pack up and move to Atlanta, Georgia, because see, some of you in this room this morning, God's going to require you to leave where you're at spiritually. Like some of you have been coming to this church for like, okay, any people from Pine Ridge listening to this sermon review, God is requiring you to leave this church immediately. Do not pass go. You are being fed lies and deception. You are not being fed God's word. This pastor should not be in the pulpit anywhere. He should be actually brought up on malpractice charges at this point. Um, yeah, so God is requiring you to leave, all right. Leave this church. For the last 15 months, and I'm just going to be honest with you, some of you have gotten cold, you've gotten lethargic, you've gotten apathetic, you've taken for granted what God's doing here, and today I believe that God's going to move you from where you're at right now to a place of greatness, but it's going to require you to leave spiritually where you are right now. Some of you are in a bad relationship. You're in a stupid relationship. You're in a relationship that you shouldn't be in, and I believe if you're ever going to achieve greatness in your life, you're going to have to leave that relationship to go where God ultimately wants to take you. Some of you are in a funk right now with your finances. And I believe you can't see God's unbelievable future for you because all you see is your present situation. And I believe today that God wants to remove you from your present situation to take you to your future situation to do something great for your life. Some of you this morning are dealing with your past. Someone wronged you. You did something wrong. You're holding on to that. And I believe today you're going to be required to leave where you're at, to leave your junk behind so God can take you to a place in your future to be able to achieve greatness. 
this. I believe some of you in this room are holding on to some sin in your life. You're addicted to something. You're dealing with something. And God wants you to leave where you're at. I, okay, last time I checked the scripture, everybody listening to this sermon is a sinner, right? Uh, you hearing the biblical gospel at all? No. no. Okay. He thinks you can get rid of the sin. Yeah, by leaving. Yeah, because... because uh, never mind. Leave the junk behind so he can take you to the future greatness that he has planned for you. The Bible says that Abraham got up and he left. No, it said that God said that he would bless the world through Abraham. He left where he was to go where God wanted him. You know, what is it? We can't see the forest for the trees. That's one way of saying it, right? He's he's completely missed the big picture here. Because he's focusing in on some minor little issue. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Abraham was willing to move. He trusted God. Okay. That, in fact, that's why God credits his faith as righteousness. Because when God speaks, Abraham believes. He trusts. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, read the whole story. But the important thing here is that God is speaking and he's saying that he's going to bless the entire world through the seed of Abraham. And this is a, a sermon preached just a few days before Christmas. And this guy can't even see Christ in the passage. Unbelievable. To be. Let me tell you what our spiritual enemy loves to do when we leave. When we prepare to leave. When we pack our stuff and we get ready to leave. You know what he does? He begins to whisper in our ear. If you leave, you're going to jack it up. If you leave and go there, you're going to fall on your face. Everyone's going to laugh at you. You're going to fail. You can't do this on your own. You don't have the potential to do this. Listen, everyone's watching you. When you step out, when you leave from where you're at to where I want to take you, man, you are going to jack it up. You are going to screw it up. And you know what? He's right. How is he so familiar with the enemy's plans? There's my encouragement this morning. He's right. Because if we leave on our own, we are going to jack it up. And so often, we try to leave on our own. That's why some of you this morning, you've been in a bad relationship, and you tried to leave on your own, and now you find yourself in another bad relationship. Some of you, man, you've done your finances a certain way your whole life, and you've left the way you did your finances in your own power, and now you're trying to do it again, and you find yourself in debt. You find yourself not able to give. You find your resources all tied up because you've been doing it on your own. Some of you are in this bad job situation, and you left one job, and now you've bounced to another job, and you're in the same situation. Why? Because you're trying to do it all on your own. And God says, listen, I've orchestrated your future. I have plans for you. I have greatness for you. You keep trying to do it on your own, but I'm the one you need to give it over to. And I think sometimes God just folds his arms and he's like, you know what? That's pretty good. Like, I mean, you can do some good stuff on your own. I mean, you can you can get a good job. You can get in a good relationship. You can have a... Is there a passage of Scripture that says without him we can do nothing? Right? You wouldn't even be breathing if it wasn't for God. You think that you can do anything without you? Oh, man. Good marriage. You can be a good parent. You, you can start a good company. You can build a good 401k. You can build a good nest egg. That, that's good. But I have greatness for you. Like, I have greatness for your life. Where does it say that in Scripture, Tad? Where does it say that? 
I mean, don't we have, shouldn't we be having, preaching a gospel that plays just as well to the garbage man as it does to the millionaire? Shouldn't we have a, uh, a gospel that is capable of bringing repentance and the receiving of the forgiveness of sins to capitalists as well as socialists? From homeless people and prostitutes all the way to CEOs and and billionaires. You know, I thank God for uh, people who have humble jobs. And I would consider them great if they're great in the faith. If they're great in Christ and trusting in him. Hmm. Like, I've orchestrated a supernatural plan for your life. I got something great for you. And so often, man, we settle for the good. But God has the great in store for us. How many times in our life, because we wanted to do it on our own, have we accepted the good in our life or the great things in our life? Listen, this morning. Oh, okay, you got to help me. Sorry, I have an MBA. I have a master's in business administration from Pepperdine University. He's actually, you know what he's he's really preaching on? He's preaching on the book Good to Great. Okay, it's an MBA level business book. Good to Great. And the basic premise behind the book is that good is the enemy of great. This isn't the Bible. This is this is a business book. Good night. Friends. Our future is not in our hands. It's in God's hands. Are we willing to move from where we are to ultimately go where God wants us to be? And see, the question that I think begs to be asked this morning is if some of us in this room have chosen to follow Christ, why is it that we won't leave where we are to go where God wants us to be when we know that God has greatness in our future? Why? Where does it say that in Scripture, Tad? What are you? What have you been smoking? Serious. You're a pastor. Your job is to actually preach the word. What is this? Why is that? Why Why are we so afraid to leave? What are the reasons why we won't go when God calls us to go? I believe there are three reasons this morning why people don't go when God calls them to go. Three reasons why we don't leave. And the first one is this, is that people live by sight and not by faith. People normally live by sight and not by faith. There's a reason in Scripture why Abraham is called the father of faith. Why? Because he left on faith, not by sight. You say, explain that to me. Go back to scripture, Genesis chapter 12, verse. No, it's because he trusted God. He knew that he who gave the promise was capable of delivering on his promises. He's even working with a skewed definition of faith here. Verse 1. It said, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, leave your people, and your father's household. Notice uh, that uh, Abram is just a moral example for us. And, Tad, you've completely biffed it. You don't even really realize what the passage is about. It's about God promising us Christ. That's the plot line of Scripture. should work really well during Christmas. You should try it sometime. And go to the land I will show you. You know what that alludes to? It means Abraham hadn't seen the land before. God said, leave your country, leave your people, leave your family, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. That means Abraham had never seen the land before. He had never caught a glimpse of it. He did not know where he was going, yet he got up and he went anyway. He lived a life of faith and not of sight. And to- uh, Tad, God actually spoke directly to Abraham. 
Okay. John, has God ever told you to uh, move somewhere? No. 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 I'm kind of in the same boat. Um, so is is this a normal thing? I mean, does every Christian God calls him up and says, I need you to move somewhere or I need you to leave something and do – because he's allegorized it that way. I don't think so. God talked to me. I'd be pretty freaked out. Yeah, me too. Okay, so here we got um, – apparently God – he doesn't understand why people aren't just leaving things and walking by faith to go experience greatness, right? Folks, the only thing I can understand at all that people really should consider leaving is to leave this church so they can actually go and experience a great church because this isn't. They don't even think this qualifies as a good church at this point, not based on this kind of preaching. Too often, we don't leave because we don't know where we're going, and so we're too afraid to go. Look what it says in Hebrews eleven eight. It says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. He had no clue where he was going. Many of you would say, Hey, man, God, I- I'll go. Like, like, I'll go, but you got, you got, you got to help a brother out. Like, like, I mean, let me just catch a glimpse of where I'm going. Like, if you could just give me a glimpse of what the land looks like, if you can just give me a glimpse of where you're taking me, then man, I'll go. I'll go, God. Help me out, God. If you just let me see a glimpse of where, where I'm going to go, just let me, let me see a little bit of it. God, I'll move. I'll go. And too often we're like, God, show me the way and I'll go. Show me where I'm going and I'll go. And God's like, no, 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 no. What is he talking about? Is this you know God God I you know you know wants me to move from an apartment into a house? He wants me to move from Los Angeles, Southern California to Florida? What what is he talking about? Does do we all get these kinds of things? You go and I'll show you when you get there. That's living a life of faith and not a life of sight. God blesses us when we go with no destination in sight, when we don't know what he has planned for us. So, folks, pack your bags, become an aimless wanderer, and God will show you when you get there. Huh? That's when God stretches us. That's when God uses us. That's when God begins to unleash and unveil the greatness he has planned for our life. We like to know all the answers, don't we? We like to know all the answers, but knowing all the answers, that isn't faith. That isn't trusting God. Today, God's calling us to a place of faith. What kind of faith does God call us to? Faith in Christ, not faith in in our great future, right? I want to read a passage from, for you. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 14, starting at verse 12, we actually read about Satan. Listen to this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself the most high. Satanism is all about you. It's Satan, Satan's the Satan's focus was himself and his greatness. Didn't Satan wanted to ha- he thought he had plans of greatness. You know, these were great plans, right? To ascend higher than God. But you were brought down to Sheol to the reaches 
far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the one who made the earth tremble and who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? This sermon is satanic in the sense that it's basically telling you that you have greatness lined up for you. You don't know that. For our lives. The second reason why I believe people don't leave is people have a fear of failure. People have an honest fear of failure. Abraham had a reason to stay where he was. Think about it. Abraham looked around and he's like, man, this right here, this is a failure in the making. God says, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your family. And I want to bless you. And I want to make you a great nation. And you know, Abraham's looking around thinking, God, I'm 75 years old. Like you, if you know the story of Abraham. That's funny. It doesn't say that in the scripture, does it? He's not exegeting the scripture at this point. He's inserting stuff into the text. But again, God speaks to him, so I'm sure he's capable of getting all this extra biblical knowledge at will, right? Abraham, his wife has just gotten pregnant. He's like, look, I got this wife. She's old, too. And we have our first child on the way. So we got me, my wife, our soon-to-be child, and Lot is going with We got He doesn't even have the story straight. Sarai did, was not pregnant at this point. Sarah was barren for a long, long, long time. You know, he's, does this guy read his Bible? This is kind of embarrassing. He, he might, we might want to take him out of the pulpit and send him back for some remedial Bible courses. Four people. Where's this nation going to come from? Like, God, this is a failure. I'm going to tell my family. I'm going to tell my country. I'm going to tell my people that I'm leaving to go start this great nation because God orchestrated it. And I got four people going with me. God, I'm, I'm going to be a failure. God, I'm going to make a mistake. God, I'm going to look stupid. God, I'm going to fail. And yet, Abraham didn't allow the fear to keep him from going where God wanted him to go. Some of you in this room this morning, fear has you paralyzed. God is calling you to leave where you're at, to go where he ultimately wants you to be, but you're paralyzed in fear. You're looking around and you're thinking, man, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall dead on my face. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to mess it up. And so you sat in your chair and God's been calling you and he's been calling you to a point of greatness for your life. But before too long, you sat on the sidelines and fear has kept you paralyzed. Remember this morning that scripture tells us that fear does not come from God. Fear is an... I thought the Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <clears throat> Just had to contradict them, you know, because I could. It is the nature of our spiritual enemy. And if you're afraid this morning to leave, it's because you haven't put your faith in God and you're listening to that little whisper in your ear that's telling you that you can't achieve greatness. And he's got you exactly where you want you. The spiritual enemy is winning and you're afraid to move. The spiritual enemy doesn't want you to achieve greatness. Why? Because he wants to be great. The third and final reason this morning, I think it's the most important reason why people don't leave when they're called, is people don't trust God with their future. People don't trust God. They don't trust their future in his hands. I know. Can you give me a reason why I should trust this God that you're talking about? I'm serious. I, I'm not even convinced this is the God of the Bible at this point. Why should I trust this God? 
Can you give me a reason? Any, any, anything? You know, like the cross, you know, fulfilled prophecy, dying for our sins, you know, things like that. No, it's hard. I know it's hard a lot of times. But Abraham made an unwavering commitment to trust God with his future. Abraham had a real trust in God, the God of the universe, when it came to his future. He knew that his future, a future of greatness, was in God's hands. He understood that. He embraced that. He lived a life that showed that. And I believe today that God is speaking to some of you. I believe so he believes that God's speaking to some people. You know, if he was actually reading God's word for real, maybe God would be speaking. But he's more or less just equated himself with Abraham and then said that if you want to have this greatness that God has in store for you, condition number one is you have to leave. And he's now saying you have to have faith enough to leave. Leave what for what, though? Right now that God is telling some of you in this room that I got something for your life. I got something I want to do in your life. I got plans for you. There's something I want to do through you. I'm not finished with you yet. In fact, I haven't even started with you yet. And some of us are looking around the room and we're thinking, God, I mean, have you seen the situation we're in right now? I mean, like, do you know about the economy, God? I mean, like, have you seen the economy? I mean, gas prices are up and down and they're all over the map and, you know, the stock market is dwindling and we got everyone filing bankruptcy and the housing market is crashing. And, and God, I mean, do you, do you know what's going on? Do you know what's going on? And let me tell you what's happened for a lot of us in this room, specifically Christ followers. We've, we've looked around and we've started to get, get scared. And what we've done is we began to shut down. We started playing it safe. We, we started playing it real careful. We began to protect all that we got. And so we've hold on to our resources. We've hold on to our relationships. We hold on to everything we have. And we've locked it down. And we're afraid to trust God with our future. And a lot of us, man, if we're not careful, we've stopped trusting God. And we've started holding on to what we can make. And God's like, listen, trust me with your future. Trust me. Trust me when it doesn't make sense. Give when it doesn't make sense. Live your life when it doesn't make sense. Oh, I think I see what's going on. Tithing is down. Yeah. <sighs> Had to sneak that in there, didn't he? The person who's really afraid is Tad Grandstaff because the people in his church aren't giving as much as they used to because maybe they lost their job and they don't have anything to give. <sighs> Reach out to people where it doesn't make sense because I have plans for you. Don't look around. Look to me because I have future greatness for you. But so often, man. We <laughs> so how is he going to get tithing back up by telling people that God has future greatness for him and to stop being tight with their finances, right? And we look around and we can't see those things. Listen, this morning, so often we're driven by the things in life we've talked about this whole series that we can consume. We're driven by what we can have. And some of us, man, we're so worried that we're not going to be taken care of. We're so worried that we're not going to have the things that we need. And, and more than ever right now, I just want you to pause with where you're at. I want you to open your heart. I want you to open your ears. And I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say because I believe this is some of the most powerful words that are ever wrote down in Scripture. Listen to Jesus' words when he answers those questions for us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 33 listen to these words he says therefore i tell you do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body what you will wear is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes look at the birds of the air they do not sow or reap or store away in barns 
and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which are here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall I eat, or what shall I drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagan run after those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given to you. Now, that's a great passage of Scripture. Great passage. And what's Christ doing? He's calling people to stop to stop worrying about these things and to have faith in him. And what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Whose righteousness do we seek? We seek Christ's righteousness. So to seek first the kingdom of God is to seek first a kingdom of forgiveness and to trust Christ in the promises regarding our salvation, the forgiveness of sins won for us on the cross, and the mercy that's being offered to us obstinate, sick sinners who deserves judgment, but God is not going to give us what he's, what we deserve because he took our judgment on himself on the cross and he's offering us righteousness, forgiveness of sins, and faith as a gift. Okay, that's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. Let's see what he does with it. God says, look, here's the deal. Seek me. Trust me. Put me first. Seek me. Trust me. Put me first. Seek me. Trust me. Put me first. Trust me where I'm going to take you. I'll take care of you. So he's turning that into a condition. Okay, watch what he did there. Seeking first the kingdom of God. First of all, Scripture says there is no such thing as a seeker. If you're seeking God, it's because God has given you faith. And to seek first the kingdom of God is to seek the gospel, forgiveness of sins. And he's working it into basically a conditional clause. No, you may not have everything the world has. You may not be able to buy all these expensive things, but I'll make sure that you have clothes. I thought he had greatness for us. Now we're just reduced to clothes? This deal's getting worse. If I'm just, if all I have is clothes, then how's that greatness? I'll make sure that you have food. I will make sure you're taken care of. Trust me. Trust me with your future. Stop tooling. Stop wrestling. Stop stressing. You put your faith and trust in me, and I'll take care of the rest. I'll take care of your future. How many of us this morning cannot speak so much truth to our life because we are so compelled, we are so driven by what we can get and what we can achieve. And so our life, man, is all about getting to the next level and purchasing the next thing and consuming the next thing. And God's like, stop, wait, pause, trust me, I'll take care of you. You're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to make it happen. Take care of me to do what? What is the context of this taking care of here? Where is the cross? Where is the forgiveness of sins? Completely missing in all of this. Yeah, God is going to take care of us. But this, at this point, he's really, really doing a job on the scriptures. Happen on your own. I got this. I got you. I'm in control. This morning, if we're ever going to move where we are to where God wants us to be, 
We talked about the first one this morning that we're going to have to leave. And the second thing this morning that we need to understand is when God tells us to leave, He always gives us a promise. The way God encourages us to leave this morning is He always promises us some things in our future. And I want you to notice again in the story that God gave Abraham one command and seven promises for his life. You know what God was doing as He did that? He was giving and encouraging Abraham to get up and leave. Let's go back to our story this morning in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. It said, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, leave your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old. We know that part of the story. Leave where you are so that I can take you where I want you to go. That was the command. The one command. He says, Abraham, get up, leave from where you're at, and go where I want you to go. And look at the seven promises he gives for his life. Verse 2, it says, I will make you into a great nation. That's the first promise. It says, I will bless you. That's the second promise. He says, I will make your name great. That's the third promise. He says, and you will be a blessing. That's the fourth promise. He said, I will bless those who bless you. That's the fifth promise. He says, whoever curses you, I will curse. That's the sixth promise. He says, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. That's the seventh promise. One command and seven promises us. This guy doesn't understand law and gospel at all. At all. I mean, basically, he's. If I'm, if, if I were listening to this at his church, I'd be basically going, "Okay, well, if I can keep one command, God will give me seven promises." So it's all contingent upon my commandment keeping. But see, that's the way of the law. If you do this, then God will do that. But the way of the gospel is that it says that God has done this, therefore you, okay, therefore you are blessed. God has forgiven you of your sins christ has died for your sins therefore you are forgiven you are set free right this is this is law 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 this is not the gospel this is something completely different promises for his life and i love verse four what it says it says so abraham left as the lord had told him He had no idea where he was going, but he knew God was faithful, and he left where he was to go where God wanted him to be. He knew the promises that God had for his life. Understand this this morning. When God calls you, when he calls you to leave, he always gives you an incentive. When is God going to call us to leave? And is God going to speak to me directly to let me know what these incentives are? Chris, I want you to uh, do X. I want you to leave and go to Jamaica. And when you go, X, Y, and Z. This, when we read this passage, first of all, who was God speaking to? Abraham. Abraham. Is this is this a norm for for everybody in the Christian faith? No, not at all. What he's done is he's allegorized the text, and by allegorizing it, he keeps missing the big point that God. The, the big point is it's Christ crucified for our sins. It's, it's, it's that, that God is going to bless the entire world, all the nations of the world, through Abraham. Well, how is that going to happen? Through Christ. It's about Christ. He's allegorizing the text and somehow making the, the, this some kind of a pattern for us to follow. 
well, the, yeah, you are Abraham. Yeah, I'm Abraham. He's apparently Abraham too. So you know, in order for this to work, then God has to speak to me extra biblically. He has to speak to me directly, and then tell me to leave. Well, that's not biblically, right? Ah, to pack up your stuff and to go. And that incentive for a lot of us this morning is understanding and having the faith to believe that he has future greatness for us. That he has future greatness for our life. And some of the reason why some of us in this room have never left where we're at to go where God wants us to be is because I believe we fall under two categories this morning. Either you're here this morning and you've never heard the promise of God for your life. That's the first category. Like you've never heard God promise your life anything. Or the second category this morning is that God's given you a promise and you sat in your seat paralyzed by fear and you've done nothing with the promise that God's given you. What is the promise that God has for my life, Tad? Those are the only two categories you can fall under. Either you don't know God's promise or you do know God's promise and you've chosen to do nothing with God's promise for your life. Where do I get one of these promises? Is there a queue, a line that I wait in? Is that they have like maybe a number system? You pull a number and you wait for them to call your number and you can get one of these things? Some of you today, he's speaking to you. Oh, he is. He's speaking to you and he's calling you to leave where you're at. And you're looking around and you're like, well, God, I kind of got this thing going on right now. You know, I'm kind of good. I'm making some good money. My marriage is good. And things are going well. Business is going well. Things are good for us. Things are good, and I believe God's saying, there's greatness in you. There's greatness in you. Where You believe God's saying, can you show me a passage of Scripture that says that? There's greatness in you. I, I have something for you. I've orchestrated something. I've designed something. I got the blueprints laid out. I got a place for you to go. Are you willing to move? Are you willing to leave? Are you willing to go somewhere? He says, I want to use your life to make a difference. A difference doing what? What does that mean? You know, Hitler made a difference. Big difference. Big, big. Hitler made a huge difference. He was great. Yeah. In fact, he was Time Magazine's Man of the Year one year. And, you know, the, the German people loved him because he got the trains running on time again. Nation followed him. Exactly. He made a difference. He changed the world. <sighs> Use your life to make a difference. But you're going to be required to leave first. To go where I want you to be. Let me tell you something this morning. Every single time I've left when God's called me to leave, he's taken me to a place of greatness in my life. Wow. I want to be so spiritual like you, Tad. It's not an arrogant statement. It's just the nature of who God is. It's God's testament. It's God's testimony in my life of saying when I've moved, when God's called me to move, he's taken me to a place of greatness in my life. See, Tad is like Abraham. He's just like the man of faith. You know, <sighs> like when I was in high school and I was in a really bad relationship and God asked me to leave that relationship and I left that relationship. God took me to a place of greatness when I was making some really stupid decisions and living in a really bad lifestyle. And God removed me and said, Tad, you got to leave that lifestyle behind because I got somewhere to take you every time I left. How about repent of your sins? OK, you were sinning. You were in a sinful lifestyle. How about repent of your sins and, and trust in Christ for forgiveness? Left. He had greatness planned for my life. Oh, he didn't see. He, he didn't have any remorse for his sins. He just he needed to leave that and so that he can experience greatness. Right? Is that really repentance? No. Okay, where you can you know you can leave a particular lifestyle so that you can attain greatness. 
when I packed up my stuff and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, God had greatness in store for me. I moved down there. I didn't know anyone. I had no friends. I had no relationship. I had no family there. And I worked my way up the totem pole from the bottom to the top. I was leading a high school ministry. I was three years into that church. All of a sudden, our church began to plant churches. All of a sudden, a church planner approaches me and says, Tad, I believe God wants you to leave. I believe he wants you to come plant a church with me. I didn't know this guy. I didn't know the area. He said, God's calling you to come to Canton, Georgia to plant a church with me. I want you to be the associate pastor. I want you to come. And all of a sudden, I'm like, God, I've worked for everything. I've worked my way to the top. God, I don't want to leave. And God said, Tad, this isn't the future I have planned for you. I have great things in store. I packed up my stuff. I moved to Canton, Georgia. We planted a church. We're two years in. God's rocking Canton, Georgia. God's changing lives. And all of a sudden, God says, Tad, it's time to move to Alamance County. It's time to plant a church. I want you to go up there. I want you to reach people. And I'm like, God, I don't know anyone in Alamance County. I don't even know where Alamance County I'm not even familiar with the, the God that he's talking about at this point. Um, because he's exegeting his own life rather than the Bible again. County is. I don't have any friends there. I don't have any relationships there. How am I going to go when God says, hey, I got this vision, this vision for the future, this vision of greatness. You're going to go up there. You're going to meet people. Lives are going to be changed. All of a sudden, July 2006, me and my wife, we pack up our stuff. We move up here. We leave where we, where we were at to go where God wanted us to be. All of a sudden, we get up here. We form some relationships. We launch this thing called Pyramid Church on September 9th, 2007. Here we are 15 months in, reaching over 400 people every weekend, seeing 140 people give their lives to Christ. And all of a sudden, God said, I'm going to bring some crazy people along to buy into this crazy vision because I have future greatness for the people in this room future greatness for your life that's a great story isn't it it's not biblical it's it's a story well let me tell you something for every time that i've moved in my life i can name a hundred times that i sat on the chair and i never moved when god called me to move those are the great moments in my life that i can say i got up and went when god called me to move remember this is a christmas sermon move but there's been points in my life when when you've been scrooged is the name of it when i never moved and i knew god was calling me to move and you know what i'm driven to the thoughts of what is the greatness i missed out on because i sat on the sidelines and i watched it go by because i was too afraid to leave when god called me to leave how many times in your life has god called you to leave where you were to go where he wants you to be but you've been too afraid to leave and god's like you're missing out on greatness what are you talking about <laughs> And God says you're missing out on greatness. Can you imagine the Apostle Peter preaching this? You know, you, you could have had greatness, but you crucified the author of life. You know. You're missing out on greatness. I had something for you. I had a plan for you, but you're missing out on greatness. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul preaching this at the local synagogues on his missionary journeys? Brothers, uh, you know, in the past, God has spoken to us by the prophets and, and, you know, God led us out of Egypt and, and now he's called us to greatness. Greatness. I have a promise for your life. And in that promise, there's something great. We've missed out on it. How about the promise of eternal life? How about the promise of the forgiveness of sins? How about the promise of mercy in Christ? How about those promises? Greatness? Greatness. Seems very self-centered, doesn't it? Seems very unhumble. It seems arrogant. It seems that you're feeding people's ego rather than correctly telling them about their sin and their need for a savior and their complete worthlessness in and of themselves. You know, it doesn't like it's not like God looks at the elect and says, you know, 
that kid's destined for greatness. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to make him choose me, you know. I shared this with our volunteer staff last Sunday night at a volunteer staff appreciation dinner. I was there in Atlanta, Georgia, back in October at the Catalyst Conference, and one of my good friends and mentors, Pastor Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church, shared a message that I've just kind of been able to hold on to and kind of embrace. And that message was that each and every one of us that have chosen to follow Christ, and even if we haven't chosen to follow Christ, there is a promise for our life. And this is kind of the way that I've regurgitated this and the way that I've pieced this thing together where I've kind of birthed this whole message out of. For every single one of us in this room, there is a promise for our life. God's given us a promise. For us, for me, the promise was Pine Ridge Church. The vision reaching 118,680 people that don't attend church in this county. God gave us a promise to reach thousands of people for Him. I have personal promises, promises for my marriage, promises for my finances. And you know what? At the end of that promise, God has a payoff. So he's got personal promises from God regarding his marriage and his finances. So, you know, apparently God is talking to him about all different areas of his life. I mean, because he's just like Abram, right? I wonder if all the nations will be blessed through uh, Tad Grandstaff. Like a payoff. It's a fulfilled vision. It's what it looks like when it's done. It's like what this church looks like. We're reaching thousands of people and lives are changed. It's what my marriage, ultimately what God wants it to look like. It's what my finances, what my parenting, the payoff is what God wants my life to be. In between that promise and that payoff is a process. You know what that process is? It's moving from where you're at to where God wants you to be. And see, if you're not experiencing greatness in your life, it's because you're doing things wrong. You know, you just, you're not leaving, you're not, you know. And you know what, for a lot of people, they cannot handle the process. A lot of people are scared to death of the process because this requires you to change. This requires you to move. This requires you to get up and do something with your life. This requires you to leave some stuff behind, to abandon sin, to leave your past, to leave some relationships. It requires you to get up and do something. And a lot of people, you know what? You're stuck with the promise of God on your life, but you'll never see the payoff because you're scared to death of the process. Never see the payoff because you're scared to death of the process. I thought Christ said that his burden was easy and his yoke was light. And that the work of God is to believe in the one whom the Father has sent. That's Jesus Christ, right? I mean, wow, this is quite a guilt trip here. You know, maybe I'm not experiencing greatness, be, you know, because I'm just doing things wrong. Where's the where's mercy and the forgiveness of sins? I don't know about you this morning, but the payoff is worth every single bit of the process. And I believe this morning that God has greatness for your future. He has greatness for my future. And I'm willing to put in the dirty work in the trenches. I'm willing to move even when it sucks, even when it's uncomfortable, even even, even what I have planned for my life. I'm willing to move when God calls me to move because the payoff is a lot more worth the process. Are you willing to move from a place of promise to a place of payoff in your life because you realize that God has future greatness in store for you? Let's pray this morning. Wow. Ew. Ick. Seriously, what was that? That was a train wreck. That was not a Christmas sermon. There was no Christ in that Christmas sermon. There was no Christ in that sermon at all. It was 
an allegorized text and, and God telling you to leave to do what? I don't know. And apparently God speaks to you. And, and if you're not afraid of the process, then he'll make promises to you regarding finances in your marriage and, and maybe you planning a church or your, I don't know. What's the takeaway here? <laughs> the takeaway is, is that don't do that. That's not a Christian sermon. That's anything but, and Tad Grandstaff should really be brought up on heresy charges, but I don't think that'll happen because somebody will say, oh, he's just, he's just t- making the message relevant. He's saying Christian things in, in just different language so that, cause he's a good communicator and, and culturally is reaching out to people with, with, a, with a positive message to which I say, bah humbug, you've been scrooged. Anyway, <laughs> if you would like to email me, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless.